Right, okay, now last time we did Apostles, all right, we finished them off, and now we move on to Prophets, and this is actually the last ministry that we've got to cover, then we've just about done done the whole lot. So tonight we turn our attention to Prophets, and uh, probably got you wondering, what exactly is a Prophet? Uh, apostles baffle everyone, but it doesn't baffle you anymore, and, uh, and hopefully by the time we finish this evening, Prophets won't in any way baffle you, all will be absolutely clear and uh, the, the one hint I gave you last week you remember as I was ending is that I promised you that they had absolutely nothing to do with Captain Kirk and Star Trek so therefore as promised no mention whatsoever of Star Trek tonight okay um, except to say this all right what do you call an alien who sticks to you like glue a Klingon Oh, forget it, forget it. Make, made that up this afternoon after a time of prayer I did. Right, okay, what are prophets? What is a prophet? Well, let's, let's dive in and start with the Greek word. And immediately I want to show you the problem that we hit up against the moment we try and define what a prophet is. Because the Greek word for a prophet is prophetis, and it means one who speaks forth. Simple as that. It comes from two words, pro, which means forth, and femi, which is the Greek verb for to speak. So the word prophet in the Greek literally just means one who speaks forth. And the whole idea that it carries with it is the idea of someone who speaks forth the mind and the counsel of God. Now, can you see the immediate problem that we hit up against? If we're going to define prophet simply by the meaning of the word, one who speaks the mind and counsel of, of God, well, for instance, a Bible teacher also does that. An evangelist also does that. But they're not prophets. I mean, they might be prophets as well. So can you see, if a prophet is simply one who speaks forth the mind and counsel of God, there are no end of people in the Bible... Bible teachers included, who also did that. Now, you might have a Bible teacher who is also a prophet, but he's not a prophet simply because he's a Bible teacher. So, therefore, okay, it's someone who speaks forth God's word, but we've got to be far more specific than that if we're to uh, understand it. So, what we've got to do, we've got a knot here, and with Apostles, we had a knot that we had to untie and really take it to bits and see it clearly. And we've got to do that now in regards to prophets. And you'll remember that the key to understanding what an apostle was, was that we found three categories. We saw that in the New Testament there were three different types of apostle. And we saw that by defining each type, we discovered that there's only one type of apostle around today. All right? Now, we've got to do something similar in regards to prophets, but, and you may be excited about this or you might groan, but what I've got to show you now is that the Bible speaks of five different categories of prophet. So we're going to look into the five different categories of prophet that the Bible speaks about, and then we can fit them in where they belong, and we're going to end up at the end with a definition of what is a prophet today, okay? <laughs> and out of the five categories of prophet in the Bible, two of those categories are around today. But one 
of those categories is very, very general, but that will make sense later. Now then, category number one, all right, simply this, the Old Testament prophets. Now there's the first category of prophets in the Bible. And if you read through the New Testament, whenever you get the word prophet, you'll find that 90% of the time, it is always referring to the Old Testament guys. Okay, so category number one are the Old Testament prophets. Now go to Hebrews. We're going to be belting around a lot in the Bible tonight because I'm going to be saying things that you've probably never heard, and, and I want to make absolutely sure that, that, this, that you can all see how it's grounded in the teaching of the Bible itself. So Hebrews and chapter 1, and in fact the first two verses of chapter 1. And we read this. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. Now here, the writer's talking about the Hebrew prophets, the Old Testament guys. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And what the writer's saying, he says, in, the, in times past, God spoke through the prophets, but now... He's spoken through his son. Now, can you see that there is the end of an era? The writer is saying, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, category number one, but now he speaks through his son. And what you've got there is an end of an era, and you've got the end of category number one prophet. The age of the Old Testament prophets ended in actual fact, with John the Baptist. Let's see that. Go to Matthew 11. Very, very simple, very, very straightforward. Because, of course, what we're leading up to is all these types of prophets that I'm going to show you, which ones are around today. So, as we go through each one, we'll see which ones aren't around today. And in Matthew 11, first of all, uh, in verse 11, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there is no one risen who is greater than John the Baptist. So he's talking about John the Baptist. Now go to verse 13. Jesus said, <coughs> for all the prophets and the law. Now, the law and the prophets always refers to the entire Old Testament, all right, up to the time of Jesus. Jesus said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So John the Baptist was the last of the prophets in the Old Testament sense. So therefore, they're not, away, you know, they're not around today. They're gone. They finished with the coming of Jesus. There are two exceptions. Can anyone guess what the two exceptions are? In the Great Tribulation, do you remember, Moses and Elijah will be back to preach to Israel in the end times. But that is an exception, because Israel is kind of Old Testament stuff, as it were. But apart from those two exceptions, the Old Testament prophets are gone, all right? Period. Finished. Now, let's just go through very, very briefly what they did, kind of, the ministry that they had, because each category gives us layers of information, and we can put it all together at the end. With the prophets in the Old Testament, they revealed the will and the nature of God. It was through them that God revealed himself, because they spoke of God, they, they revealed the kind of God that he was, okay? They directed national affairs and local affairs, all right, so they bring God's word to Israel and they say, as a nation, God wants you to do this, or they'd be brought into a local situation, they say, right, God wants you to do this. So they directed the affairs of Israel. 
They brought correction when Israel was wrong. If Israel was out of fellowship with God, the prophets came in to rebuke them. But when Israel was going on with the Lord, the prophets were there to encourage them forward. So they had a twofold thing. They rebuked when Israel was up the spout, but they encouraged when Israel was on the right track. Also, the, these guys, they, preached the God, they spoke God's word to the Gentiles as well. So also they were evangelists in that sense, because they brought God, God's word to God's own people, Israel, but they also brought God's word to the Gentiles around, so in that sense they were kind of evangelists. Also, they foretold the future, but particularly concerning the future of Israel and the coming of Jesus and the end times. So there's a very, very quick thumbnail sketch of, um, you know, kind of uh, what the Old Testament prophets actually did. But this is something, now I'm going to say, is very important. Underline this in your mind now and you'll be home dry later on. Because what you've got to realise is that the prophets in the Old Testament is, by and large, they weren't declaring things from the Word of God. I'll say that again. By and large, they weren't declaring things from the Word of God or the Old Testament. What they were doing was that they were actually receiving and writing the Old Testament. Can you see? Because it was the messages that God gave to them for Israel and the nations, which were written down and became the Old Testament itself. So the prophets in Old Testament times they weren't declaring God's word from the Old Testament, they were actually receiving and writing or supervising the writing of the Old Testament scriptures themselves. So underline that, the Old Testament prophets were actually writers of the word of God. Not all of them, but by and large they were. Now we'll be back to that later. Now one of the distinctive things about prophets in the Old Testament is that they did not work in accountability to men. They worked directly under God. They were not accountable in any way whatsoever to the body of Christ. Why not? Well, because it didn't exist. The church didn't come until the New Testament times. So therefore, in the Old Testament, these guys, the prophets, they didn't work under men. They weren't accountable to men in any way at all. They were accountable directly to God himself. They worked purely with God as their boss. God spoke to them directly, and they just got on with it. Now, to that extent, the prophets in the Old Testament are the counterparts to the apostles in category 2, the 12. Do you remember we saw they worked directly under Jesus? They were the only ones who knew everything that needed to be known. So the prophets in the Old Testament, they worked directly under God himself. They were not accountable to the body of Christ or anything like that because it wasn't around at all. Now the important thing to get hold of here <coughs> is that that type of prophet Number one has long gone. It finished with the ministry of John the Baptist. And of course today there is no ministry directly under God. Now what I mean, I mean of course we are all directly under God in that sense, we know him. But when I say directly under God, there is no one today who has a ministry that is purely accountable to God alone. 
because God has put us within the body of, of Christ. All ministries today are accountable to the local church. There is no one who in that sense is now directly under God. And therefore I say to you, be careful of people who think that they are directly under God. You see what I mean? These are the people, they test their own guidance all the time. There's no reference to anyone else at all. I mean, they come along and they say, thus saith the Lord. There's no question about it. It's thus saith the Lord. And if you question it, it's because your unbelief never occurs to them that they're up the spout. You see what I mean? Uh, there is someone who thinks that they've got hotlines of God and they just dial his number, or more likely God dials their number. And they've got this little spiritual radio phone that they carry around with them. You know, and they hear it ring and, oh, what's the message? Right, okay, thanks, Lord, I'll pass that on. Now, beware of anyone like that, all right, particularly big ministries who are like that. No one today is directly under God. We are all accountable to the body of Christ. We are all accountable to the local church. We are all accountable to our brothers and sisters. So, category one prophets, the Old Testament prophets, long gone. John the Baptist was the last but the two exceptions in the end times, Moses and Elijah return. But the point about Moses and Elijah is they're both Old Testament prophets. They've simply got a little bit more to do in regards to Israel in the end times. Right, so category number one, Old Testament prophets, gone. Finished with John the Baptist. Right, the second category of prophet, this won't surprise you, we saw it in Apostle. And we've got to see the prophethood of Jesus. Category two, the prophethood of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. Go to Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, what's happening is you get a little kind of evangelistic sermon like to uh, Israel. And there's reference back to teaching that Moses gave back in Deuteronomy and chapter 18. But we want Acts chapter 3, and let's begin reading from verse 17. All right? Now then, this is, this is Peter, I think. He says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now he quotes Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now the thing about Moses is that Israel had never seen anything like him. He was a one-off. He was a real one-off leader. And Moses said, look, in the future, in a similar way to the fact that you've had me, someone, another prophet, is going to be raised up. And you listen to him, and you do whatever he tells you. Now, Moses never expected Israel to do whatever he told them, because Moses knew that he was a sinner. But this prophet, Moses says, when he's raised up, you do whatever he tells you. Because he is the prophet of whom all the other prophets looked forward to coming. So what you've got is that Jesus 
in this sense, was kind of a sort of a mega prophet. Can you see what I mean? Not just any old prophet, but Jesus was mega prophet. Go to John. Let's, let's just see this in the Bible. Go to jo John chapter 6, first of all, and you'll get the idea from the reaction of the people who came across Jesus. John chapter 6 and verse 14, first of all. John chapter 6, 14. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, and this is referring again to the teaching of Moses, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Go to chapter 7, next chapter, and verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Now here's the point. Jesus was not a prophet, Jesus was the prophet. Now can you see? Jesus was the embodiment in perfection of everything that the Old Testament prophets had been. But he was the embodiment of everything they were in absolute perfection. So with Jesus, he wasn't a prophet, he was the prophet absolutely unique in a way that no other prophet ever has been or ever could be. With that said, go back to Hebrews, the verses we started off with. Now let's read them again and really get this point. First two verses of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by a son. Now can you see that you've got the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. So with the coming of Jesus, one era ended because perfect prophethood had arrived in Jesus. Now the reason that Jesus was the end of an era is quite simply this. You see, Jesus was a prophetic act that you just can't follow. Can you see? No one could follow Jesus. He was, you know, absolute perfection. So we see category two, the unique, unrepeatable prophethood of Jesus himself. So Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was the prophet, because he was God himself. Remember, a prophet speaks forth the word and counsel of God. Jesus is the word and counsel of God. Can you see it? The prophet par excellence. While we're on that, Go to John 4, and I just want to, as we go along, I'm going to show you various little things that prophets do. And later on, we're going to put it all together and find out what a prophet does today. But go to John 4, and we'll just pick up a clue as to, uh, I mean, you know, we're going to ask the question, well, what, what do prophets do? You see, John chapter 4 <coughs> and verse 16. Now, this is Jesus talking to the woman by the well of Samaria. All right, and they're having a little theological chit-chat. And uh, it's getting a bit silly, all right? She's talking doctrine, and Jesus wants to talk reality to her. So in verse 16, he says this, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. Now, the point is that here Jesus said, Well, look, hang on, go and get your husband. And he's got her. 
because she'd had five husbands and now she was living in sin with somebody. There she was having a respectable little doctrinal chit-chat with Jesus. You see, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem. He confronts her with sin in her life. Now, look what she says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, why did she call Jesus a prophet? It was this, because Jesus told her something he had no possible way of knowing. Now, can you see, prophets move in the word of knowledge, all right? And here we see Jesus with a prophetic ministry which is evangelistic to an individual, all right? This woman isn't saved, although she gets saved as a result of this. And Jesus moves in the word of knowledge. He tells her, he discloses the secrets of her heart and she is convicted by it. Now, do you remember when we did the spiritual gifts series? Don't turn to it, but in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul was talking about, you know, sort of, you know, prophecy, he says that if outsiders, unbelievers come in, the secrets of their heart will be disclosed and they're convicted. Now, can you see a prophet will move in the word of knowledge in order to either convict unbelievers and bring them to salvation or possibly to bring God's people who are God's children already into a greater freedom, all right? So on an individual one-to-one -one level, we see that, okay? Now, here is Jesus being a prophet in that sense, moving in the word of knowledge and bringing someone into a relationship with God that they didn't have at all. So there's one little clue as to what prophets actually do. That will make sense more later. Now, let's move on to category three, all right? Category three. Category one, the Old Testament prophets. Category two, Jesus, all right? Now we move on to category three. Now, category three, this is one of the types of prophet that are still around today, all right? Go, go now to 1 Corinthians 14. In some ways, this is a little bit... Um, <laughs> It, well, you'll see what I mean. Let's just read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29 to 32. I'm sure Paul wrote this just to confuse Bible teachers. You'll see what I mean in a minute. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29 to 32. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting by, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. Now there, what Paul is saying is he says, in the meeting, when you're worshipping, it's body ministry, go as the Lord leads you, all right? If a prophet speaks, test it. And then he says, and you can all prophesy one by one. Now here, Paul simply refers to anyone who prophesies as a prophet, you see, which, which is just a bit confusing. But that's what he does. Can you see? Paul here simply calls anyone who prophesies a prophet. And there is category three, all right? So... If you've prophesied, you're a prophet in that sense. And of course, one of the things is that here, Paul is saying you may all prophesy one by one. Now, obviously, we're all aware here of the, what's called the priesthood of all believers, which means that every believer can mediate between an unbeliever and the Lord. All right? We can all introduce someone to God. All right? That's what a priest is. Now, you've heard of the priesthood of all believers. We can all do that. Here is the prophethood of all believers. We can all be prophets. Now, we would expect that, wouldn't we? 
Jesus was a prophet and a priest and a king. So what are we? We're all priests, we're all prophets, and of course, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, we're all going to be kings. You see, because Jesus came so we could have everything he's got. He wanted to share it with it. So Jesus was prophet, priest of king. That is exactly what we are. We're priests and prophets because all believers can prophesy and therefore Paul says every believer is a prophet in that very wide and general sense. So we just need to see that category really to clear it out of the way, all right? So category three prophet is really every believer who, you know, is, is able to prophesy and bring God's word. Also interesting, when Elijah and Moses appear in the Great Tribulation, just sort of prior to the second coming, they're called the two witnesses. And one of the words in the Bible for a prophet is a witness. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus said to the church, you will receive power to be my witnesses. So can you see it there? We've got a prophethood of all believers. Okay, right, category three, out of the way. But while we're in 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to read verse 29 and verse 32 again because that's going to lead us into category 4. And it's category 4 that is the really important one. Let's just read verse 29 and 32 again. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh or test what is said. Go down into verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, have you ever wondered about that verse? It's odd, isn't it? And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Now this verse, when you hear people talk, it's always applied to the fact that when you prophesy, if you get out of control, that's wrong. Because the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Now what I want to show you is that that is not actually what that verse is referring to at all. And this, I think, will fascinate you. I don't think you will have heard this anywhere before. I never have. I've never had an answer to the question, what is an apostle and what is a prophet? Never found them until we've done this teaching. Okay. Right. The question is this. We're now going to see category four and I'm going to call them apostolic age prophets. That's a bit of a mouthful, but apostolic age prophets all become clear. We've just read the verses that Paul says that prophecy has got to be tested. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Now then, question, how do we test a prophecy today? Or how do we test anything, but we're talking about a prophecy. How do we test whether a prophecy that someone gives is of the Lord or not of the Lord. How do we do it? Well, we test it by the Word of God. We've got the complete Bible. We've got the Old Testament and we've got the New Testament. And we test it by the Word of God. But you see, had you ever thought of this? The early church, when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, they didn't have the New Testament. Now, do you see a problem that they had? They couldn't test prophecy by the Word of God because they didn't have the completed Word of God. They only had half of it, and of course from this point of view it was the wrong half. So how did they test prophecy without having the New Testament? And what I'm going to show you is that they tested prophecy by what I'm calling apostolic age prophets.
Now, let's, let's dive into this. Now, put your thinking caps on. It's not that complicated, but you're going to have to really work with me at this. You'll remember that we saw when we were dealing with apostles that category two apostles, the 12, all right, the apostles of the Lamb, the distinctive thing about them is that they were infallible in their teaching. In fact, it was their teaching that eventually became the New Testament. And what was special about them is that they received all of Jesus' teaching from him in person. So the 12 apostles of the Lamb, that's the 12 disciples, minus Judas, replaced by Paul, their teaching was infallible. They had received it, all 12 of them, from Jesus himself in person. And their teaching was infallible. They weren't wrong on anything at all. But the problem was, there were only 12 of them. Now, the, the early church from Pentecost onward exploded. It absolutely exploded. I mean, it was mushrooming out hundreds of miles in every direction, all the way around the Mediterranean. And there were thousands upon thousands of churches. There would have been hundreds upon hundreds of churches by the time Paul wrote this thing to the Corinthians. And there were only 12 apostles. Now, can you see the problem was that in no way could the 12 apostles do that job on their own? Because there's no way the 12 apostles could be actually constantly on a rotor around every church going, making sure that everything was going okay, you see. They couldn't be everywhere at once. Now, what I'm going to show you, and this is what will be new to you, I think, is that their work was supplemented by God raising up a special one-off ministry, all right, a prophetic ministry, a one-off ministry, of men who understood and taught the same truths which the apostles were teaching. And the same truths which later on, when written down and compiled, became the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so go back one chapter. I'm going to show you this, and it will start to clear up verses that you've probably always thought, well, I just don't know what they mean. They don't seem to make any sense. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's dealing with love, and he's saying, look, you know, you can have the gifts of the Spirit dripping out of your ears, but if you're not moving in the love of Jesus, what's the point? It's a waste of time. Now, look at verse 2. Let me read it, first of all, how it tends to be understood, because they've got a comma. Now, we're going to chuck the comma away, and it changes things, because there's no commas in the Greek, you see. They were put in later. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So most people say, now look, there's two ministries there. There's prophetic powers and there's understanding all mysteries and knowledge. Now, let's knock the comma out. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, can you see what Paul is talking about there? He's talking about the ministry of prophet in this one-off sense in the early church. Because what he does is that he equates being a prophet with understanding mysteries and knowledge from God. Now, this word mystery, we've come across it before. 
again and again in talks. And in the Greek, this doesn't mean, you know, a mystery isn't something you're trying to discover and work out. A mystery in the New Testament way that they use the word was something that God was only then revealing. It had never been revealed before, it was hidden before, but now God is showing it. Alright? And so what Paul does here is that he equates a prophet with understanding mysteries and knowledge from God. Now what are the mysteries? It's the New Testament teaching. And Paul is simply saying, look, you can be a New Testament apostolic age prophet. He wouldn't have called them that, that's what I'm calling it, so we can help clarify it. He says, you can even be one of them. But if you haven't got love, you've got nothing. So Paul equates being a prophet with revealing mysteries, fresh doctrine from God. Alright? And of course, understand, alright, that now that ministry that existed in the new, you know, in the church then, and don't worry, well, I'm going to show you all over the, you know, other places in the Bible where it is, all right? The point is that that ministry has now been replaced by Bible teachers, all right? Okay? For the simple reason that now, because the New Testament is completed, there are no mysteries left to be revealed. We have the whole lot in the Bible. So, simply, the Bible teacher now teaches what is in the Word of God. But these prophets, in the time of the early church, they were receiving new doctrine from God like the apostles were. And it eventually all ended up being written down. So nowadays, we don't need prophets because there's no revelation left to be had. It's all in there. But Bible teachers teach what we have in the Bible. Okay, they simply get it from the Bible, whereas the New Testament prophets got it directly, as we'll see later, from uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, now let's actually see this ministry in the New Testament. Go to Ephesians 2. <coughs> and we're going to see verses that when you understand what they actually do mean, you'll understand the error of the way that they get applied today in some churches. All right. Right, Ephesians. Now, chapter 2, first of all, we're going to look at a verse in the section that starts from verse 11 onwards, and then we're going to look at a verse in chapter 3. But I just want to show you that the context, okay, from verse 11 down to verse 13, all right, Paul's saying, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, blah, blah, blah. And he says, But now in Christ Jesus you who are far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. He's broken down the dividing wall. And he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And that what the context of that teaching is that Paul is talking about the church that God has brought the church into being, which consists of Jews, God's people, and Gentiles as well. Just go over into um, chapter 3 and verse 8, all right? And he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, grace was given, blah, blah, blah. And in verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now, in both those passages, his context is he's talking about the subject of the Christian church. Now then, let's read chapter 2 and verse 19 to 20. <coughs> so he says, So then, you're no longer strangers and sojourners, he's talking to the Gentiles here, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, what's the household of God? It's the church. It's where he lives, okay? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here, Paul is talking about the church. And he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now then, the apostles and prophets. Right, who are the apostles? That's easy. They're number two, the twelve. All right. But who are these prophets? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, could they be Old Testament prophets? Well, no, of course they couldn't, because the church wasn't revealed to them. It was a new thing that God had revealed when Jesus came. So these people here, they're not the Old Testament ones. Here you've got the New Testament prophets who were also bringing the doctrine that God was revealing so the church knew what God wanted to be done. Okay, so here we've got this supplementary prophetic ministry, all right, backing up the work of the apostles. Go to chapter 3 and verse 5. Let's see it in another verse. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Because he says, all this is new. God's only revealing it. And he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. Notice this, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what Jesus is saying, he, what Paul is saying here, he says, all this is new, all right? And he says, but it's been revealed to you by apostles, that was himself and the eleven. But he also says, the holy prophets as well. Because Paul was talking about prophets who were contemporary with himself, but who were also being used by God to bring infallible teaching to the church. So the church knew exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. So therefore, these prophets were supplemental to the apostles. They worked under the apostles, all right? And the only difference between them was that the apostles had received all their teaching from Jesus in person. Therefore, they were in charge. But these prophets received the same teaching but from the Holy Spirit, but they worked under the apostles of the time. Now, let's go back in our minds to the point that I made about the Old Testament prophets, and it's that they played a large part in writing the Old Testament itself. And it's simply a fact that most of the Old Testament books are directly associated with a recognised prophet. All right? There are 39 books in the Old Testament, and there are only eight that cannot be traced to a named prophet who either wrote it or supervised the writing of that book. So there are only eight that you can't trace to a particular named prophet. They're Ruth, 1 and 2 Kings, Esther, Job. Now, many people think that Moses wrote Job, and well, he might have done, but you can't prove that from the Bible. 
Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Only eight books in the Old Testament which aren't directly associated through the Bible itself with a recognised prophet. Now, that doesn't mean that the prophets didn't write those eight books or supervise, it just means we don't know which prophets did. But can you see, in the Old Testament, it was the work of prophets to either write or supervise the writing of the Word of God. So we can now come to a way of defining a prophet in Old Testament terms. And it's simply this, an Old Testament prophet, in the widest sense of the word, was by and large a writer of the word of God. Now can you see? A prophet, in the Old Testament sense, was a writer of the word of God. And what I'm going to show you is that the New Testament prophets were exactly the same. Go to Romans 16. All these little verses that are there, they don't mean much when you read them, but my goodness, you, you get on their trail and the picture that comes together is just so illuminating. Romans 16, verse 25 to 26. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages. Now Paul's going on again. He says, These new teachings, they've been kept hidden, but now they're being disclosed. And how are they disclosed? But is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations. Now, how was the gospel made known to all nations through prophetic writings? New Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures are called, in the New Testament, prophetic writings. But, here's the point. Including in these prophetic writings that Paul mentions here, are also writings which aren't in the New Testament at all. Now, before you start jumping up and down saying heretic, and is he going to tell us that he's found these lost scriptures? No, I'm not. Nothing like that at all. But I'm just saying that when Paul here refers to the prophetic writings revealing the new truth of the Christian gospel, he is also referring to writings that never actually got into the New Testament. And I'm going to prove that to you from the Bible. All right. So the point is, we know from this thus far that there were infallible and divinely inspired writings which were written by both the apostles of the Lamb, the Twelve, number two apostles, but also these apostolic age prophets. The apostles and prophets wrote scriptures, infallible scriptures, but some of them never found their way into the New Testament, all right? And the reason they didn't was quite simply that they weren't needed. Because the way we've got the Bible has got everything in it, all right? There were other writings at the time which were equally inspired, 
But we don't need them because the sum total of all we need to know is already in the Bible. So just supposing one was to find these lost letters, and you never ever will, I mean, they're gone. But if you were to find them, you'd read through it and there'd be nothing new in it at all. Can you see? It would be totally in agreement with what we've all you know, got here. There will be nothing new in it because we've got everything we need to know in the Bible. But here's the point I'm making. Prophetic writings, New Testament scripture, okay, written by apostles and prophets, and I'll show you that later. But let me demonstrate that there were prophetic inspired writings that didn't get into the New Testament. Go first of all to Colossians. And I'm proving this from the New Testament itself. It's no big secret. All, all Bible scholars are aware of this. Colossians 4, verse 16. <coughs> Paul says, When this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul's here writing to the Colossians, and he says, Right, when you've read my letter, this letter, you got it. When you've read it, make sure that the Laodiceans get it. So Paul has written a letter to them, and he says, When you've finished reading it, send it to the Laodicean church. But look what else he says. And see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. Now, we haven't got that letter. Do you see? It's not there. So the point is, Paul wrote to the Colossian church, and he said, read this letter. And the reason he was saying, read it, it's inspired. This is the infallible word of God. And he says, when you finish with this letter, send it to the Laodicean church. Now, that particular letter that Paul wrote, God wanted it in the scripture, so there it is. But there was another letter that Paul referred to that the Laodiceans had got. And he said, make sure you read that one. Well, we haven't got a letter to the Laodiceans. Can you see? So there we have Paul referring to a letter that we haven't got. The reason we haven't got it is because we don't need it. It's got nothing new in it. It's gone. It's lost. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and underline in your head that we are reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and find verse 9. He said, and this is the bit where he's sort of dealing with putting people out of fellowship. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. Huh? But this is 1 Corinthians. Well, it's 1 Corinthians, it's the earliest, it's the first in chronological order of the letters we got that Paul wrote to that church. But here, in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to a letter he'd already written them. Is he? And when you read 2 Corinthians, he refers back to this letter. So again, there we have a letter that Paul wrote, divinely inspired, infallible word of God. But it's not in the New Testament because we don't need it. Everything is in all the other ones in the New Testament. So nothing has been lost. We don't need them. Let's go to Acts 13, something else that's quite interesting. Acts 13, verse 1, and it says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Now, can you see that? Prophets and teachers. Not prophets who were prophets and these other guys were teachers. Prophets and teachers were one of the same thing. Can you see? I'm a teacher... But all I have to do is pick up the word of God and teach you. But teachers then had to be prophets because they couldn't pick the word of God up. They had to get the word of God directly from the Lord himself. So they were prophets. But let's keep going. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now this is Saul, or Paul the Apostle. Now what's interesting 
is that here Saul is numbered amongst the prophets. Saul, or Paul, was a prophet before he was an apostle. And it was later on in his life that he was taken up to heaven and got the teaching, therefore, directly from Jesus himself in person. Up to here, Paul's been getting it from the Spirit. And everything he was teaching was absolutely dead right, but of course, when he went up to heaven, he got even more. But that's interesting, that here, Paul was a prophet before he actually became an apostle. And again, notice the link there with teaching. You see, prophets and teaching. We're going to see this. The prophets are all about communicating the word of God. Okay. So then, <coughs> what we've got is that the New Testament, we've seen that there were other divinely inspired scriptures. They're not in the Bible because they're not needed. They're gone. And when people say we found lost scriptures, they always disagree with the New Testament. And that proves that they aren't this. These letters, if you got them all, they would, you wouldn't learn one thing that you couldn't learn from this. Can you see? They're just superfluous to requirement. They were needed then, but not now. Okay. So we know that they're uh, sort of like divinely inspired scriptures. Some we've still got, others are lost. But they were called prophetic writings. Now, we know that the apostles, number two, the twelve, some of them wrote scripture. But now I'm going to show you that the prophets wrote scripture as well. Okay. Now then, for instance, the New Testament written by apostles. Now, Paul. Paul was an apostle. He wrote the Bible, no problem. Peter, John, etc., etc. They were apostles. They were the apostles of the Lamb, of the twelve. They wrote books that are in the Bible. But you see, here's the point. Luke and Mark, you see, they weren't apostles. Jude, he wasn't an apostle. But they also have books in the Bible that they wrote. Now, here's the point. They weren't apostles of the Lamb at all, but they were prophets. Can you see? They were prophets. And they were writing the New Testament just the same as the apostles were, but the difference is that the prophets worked under the direction of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the prophets were there bringing the New Testament doctrine that God was revealing. Just go back to Acts 15, this thing about the letter when they think, oh yeah, we've got a problem here, what is our ruling on it? And the apostles and the elders got together and they sent a letter off. <coughs> now then, just uh, read quickly um, verse 32, all right? Still talking about the same letter. Um, so, start verse 30. So then they were sent off, they went to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. So they've just, you know, had divine inspired scripture. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, exalted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. Now, here's the point. That letter was carried by prophets. Can you see? Those men who took that letter were themselves prophets. Can you see it? The continual tie-up between prophet and a writer of the word of God. All right. So then, what we've got is this. 
Profits in that sense are what we're calling category four profits. As with the apostles of the Lamb, the Twelve, are no longer needed. Can you see it's a defunct ministry? Because we've got the Word of God. Their ministry was to give us the Word of God. But once they'd done it, they're gone. That ministry, as with apostles, number two, is defunct. They are no longer needed. Apostles and prophets, in that sense, no longer exist because we have the completed Bible. And apostles and prophets, in that sense, have been replaced simply by the teaching ministry in the church. Can you see? The church needs teaching. Today, we just pick the Bible up and someone teaches. But then there wasn't a New Testament to pick up. So the apostles and prophets were teachers, but they had to get the message direct from God first. That is the simple dif uh, difference. So they have been replaced, in that sense, through Bible teaching. Right, so now we come on to category number five, and they're what I'm calling the entire church age prophets. And these are the prophets who are still around today, okay? Now we're getting down to the business. What is a prophet today, all right? Um, you know, we've seen that all believers are called prophets because they can prophesy, but now we're getting on to the specific ministry of prophet as it exists today, all right? So then, what is a prophet today? Now we've got to ask some questions. Do they write the infallible word of God? No, because we got it. Do they bring new revelation? No, because there's nothing new. It's all here in the Bible. They do nothing of what the apostolic age prophets did. Can you see it's a totally different ministry? Right, so what do they do? All right. Well, I mean, for instance, we've already seen with Jesus um, and the Samaritan woman that he spoke to, there's a ministry of prophet whereby people move in the word of knowledge, in a ministerial sense. I'm in talking minister, you know, I'm not meaning ordained, I'm, you know, but as they move amongst people, that they have an anointing whereby they're especially open to knowing things directly from God that there is no natural way they can know. And uh, so, for instance, they might suddenly find themselves knowing things about somebody that they've got no way of knowing. But the fact that they know it and can share it is going to really be a blessing to that person. I mean, for instance, you might be talking to an unbeliever and think, oh, you know, right, yeah, you know, I've got a chance to witness here. And, uh, and then the Lord may show you something and say, right, well, okay, look, you know, your big problem at the moment is that you're planning to divorce your wife. And they look at you. God, how did he... Can you see? Now, there's a prophetic evangelist in that sense. And remember 1 Corinthians 14? Paul says that if a prophecy goes out, if there are unbelievers there, then the secrets of their heart are disclosed and they're convicted. So there is one aspect of the prophet's ministry. Now, obviously, any believer can move in that here and there. But what I'm going to show you now is that someone who is clearly a prophet is going to be moving a lot in all these things. All right. Anyone can do a one-off. I mean, all of us can lay hands on the sick and see them healed, if Jesus so chooses. But a healer is someone who does it a lot. Can you see? 
Now we're looking at profit. These are people who really do, you know, move in these things in a, you know, a big way. Uh, let's have another look at uh, aspects, uh, second aspect of a prophet's work. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're just now piecing together what a, a prophet, as they exist today, actually do. 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. And Paul says, This charge I commit you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophetic utterance which pointed to you. So he's writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, remember the prophetic utterance that pointed to you that you ought to be doing this work. Uh, go over into chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture. All right, now public reading, because the people couldn't read. And he'd have been reading the Old Testament, but he would have also have been reading all these infallible writings that we've been talking about. He says, uh, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the elders laid their hands upon you. Now, prophetic utterance, a prophet is also someone who is used to indicate to people any specific calling that God has for them. Can you see that aspect of the work of a prophet? There's another aspect of what they do, confirming ministries that God is calling people into. All right. Number three, prophets tell the future. Go to Acts 11. Acts 11. We're going to have a look at Agabus. Now, Agabus is the only kind of example of a prophet in the sense we're talking about now in, in, in the Bible. They weren't that common, and they're not today. Acts 11. Acts 11, verse 27. And we read this. Uh, now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius, and the disciples determined, blah, 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 to send relief to the brethren. So what happens here? Agabus, he's known as a prophet, okay, and he comes along and he says, right, there's going to be a famine over there, you know, and believe me, they're going to need help. And so he forewarned the churches, and the churches could get their money together, share it out, so it could go to the people, so that when the famine hit, the church in that place would be okay. So there we have here a New Testament prophet, in the sense that they're still around today, actually telling the future. Go to verse uh, chapter 21, and Agabus comes back on the scene here. Chapter 21, verse 10. <coughs> While we were staying for some days, that's quite interesting, let's just start from a verse 8. On the morrow we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, deacon that is, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We were staying for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this girdle and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. 
Gentiles. And here, Agabus is predicting Paul's future, that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles and eventually lose his life. So there we have, okay, an example that prophets foretell the future. And it was Agabus here both times. Now this is important. The reason that it was Agabus both times is quite simply because one of the overriding important things is that anyone can say they're a prophet and go around and say anything. All right. Now the point is Agabus was really known he was really accredited and he was really proven as far as the apostles were concerned. Can you see? They knew that his life was right and they knew that his ministry had been proven. You don't accept someone as a prophet lightly and the early church didn't. Only two examples of prophets in this sense working in the entire Acts of the Apostles. It's the same bloke both times. It's not any old Charlie turning up, prophesy. Boy, did they know Agabus. Can you see? And therefore, they could receive his ministry because he was tried, tested and proven, not just in regards to his ministry, but in regards to his life, in regards to the fruit of his life and his faithfulness to the Lord. Now, let's ask a question at this point. Can women be prophets in this sense? Now, what's interesting is that here, all right, Agabus pops up again because he's predicting that Paul is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now, isn't it interesting? Remember, Paul, Paul was an apostle. And now, Agabus comes while Paul was staying at the house of Philip the Evangelist. And Philip had four daughters who were especially known to move in prophesying. And yet God brought Agabus along to foretell Paul's future. Can you see? He did not use the four women who were available. He bought a male prophet. So in the sense we're talking about now, no, women cannot be prophets, not in that sense. Can you see? It's authoritative. And therefore, this is a men-only ministry, as indeed apostle was in the early church. So that's interesting. There were four young ladies there who had the gift of prophecy. And God could have used them to give Paul this prophecy about his future, but God brought Agabus along. Can you see? Because it was authoritative. And remember that prophets, be it Agabus or anyone else, the key thing, the Old Testament prophets work directly under God. That is not the way today. All ministries, including prophets, work under the authority of the local church. They do not work directly under God because no one works directly under God. They are accountable to the local church like anyone else. Right, go to 1 Corinthians 12 now, and we're starting to sum up, and, and, and this whole picture is, is I think, going to be clearer. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 27. Here we have Paul teaching. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, blah, 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 blah. Have you ever wondered why it's first apostle, second prophet, third teacher? Have you ever wondered that? Oh, 
we'll be back to that later. Now, what Paul is saying here is that he's talking about, prof uh, about apostles in the sense of the 12 as well, but of course they're gone. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's talking about apostles number two and three, but of course number two are gone, all right. Number three, we still have with us. And when he talks about prophet, again, he's referring to four and five because they had apostolic age prophets then, but of course number four is gone. So now these verses, all they're saying is that apostles number three, <laughs> okay, and uh, entire church age prophets are still here. But New Testament type prophets and New Testament type Apostles, they were around then, but they're not anymore. All right. Just go to Ephesians 4. Let's see that again when he refers to this. Ephesians 4, 11. And he says his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets. There you have the order again, apostles and prophets. Now, Paul was thinking of all kinds, but we've only got one kind of each around today. All right. Now... I've got to show you now the vital point about apostles and prophets. And this is what you must really get into your head. And it's simply this. They existed, apostles and prophets existed in the early church in a way that they no longer do. At the time of the early church, the hierarchy, or if you like, the pyramid of authority, was this. There was the Lord. Under him were category two apostles, the apostles of the Lamb. Under them were category four prophets. And under them were elders in local churches. Now that was the structure of authority in the early church. The Lord, apostles, prophets and then elders, all right, in local churches. Now, the reason that there you've got apostles and prophets outranking elders is simply this. They had access to divine data that ordinary elders didn't have. Can you see the point? The apostles and prophets had access to divine data the elders who weren't apostles or prophets didn't have. Therefore, they knew more and were better equipped to work out what needed to be done in any given situation. But of course, today, it is entirely different. And the reason that it's entirely different now is that we all have complete access to all that divine data. Can you see the point? Because we've got the Bible, every believer has access to all that divine data. It's in the New Testament. Therefore, category two apostles and category four prophets are made redundant at one fell swoop because we have got the completed Bible. So, in the early church, before the New Testament was fully compiled, the order was the Lord, apostles, then prophets, then elders in local churches. The chain of authority now is different. 
because we've got the Bible and it's this. The pyramid now is the Lord which equals the Bible, the completed Bible, and under that, elders of churches with everyone in the church having complete access to the Bible. So today, there's no pyramid at all, in fact. The pyramid has gone because it's not needed anymore. All we've got today, okay, are elders in individual local churches who implement the clear teaching of the Word of God which can be verified by anyone simply by looking it up. Now, can you see the presence of the completed Bible have knocked apostles and prophets out of that pyramid? Two layers are swept aside, they're gone. And all that's left is the Bible, the authority of God, with leaders of churches ensuring that the church is implementing that teaching. So therefore, the chain of authority is gone. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 <coughs> and verse 20. Right. Now we saw this verse earlier. Paul's talking about the church. And he says that the church is built <coughs> upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, at the time of the early church, it was built upon the foundation of the actual apostles and the actual prophets. But in the Old Testament, there's a phrase, and you find it in the New Testament, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Now, what does that phrase mean? The law and the prophets means the Old Testament. The phrase, the law and the prophets, equals the Old Testament. All right? And as far as we are concerned, this phrase, the apostles and prophets, equal the New Testament. Can you see the point? Israel was based on the revelation of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. But until the Old Testament scriptures were completed, they had to have it via prophets. Now, the New Testament is built on the revelation of the apostles and prophets. The New Testament. But until the New Testament was completed, all they had were the apostles and prophets themselves. So the point is that in the Bible, the phrase, the law and the prophets, equals the Old Testament. And this phrase, apostles and prophets, equals the New Testament. So let's read it again built upon the foundation of the New Testament scriptures, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Can you see? The phrase means the New Testament scriptures. It's so simple. So the church is built on the foundation of Jesus, because he's the cornerstone, but we build on the foundation of Jesus via being obedient to his teaching. Where is his teaching? It's the New Testament. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the foolish man and, you know, the wise man building their houses? And he said the foolish man who built on the, on the sand, he said that he, he, he heard my words, but he didn't do them. But he says the wise man, he heard my words and he did them, and his foundation was secure. And that's the same with the church. The foundation of the church is the New 
Testament teaching that we have. And that is the foundation that the church is therefore built on. So therefore, in that 1 Corinthians 12, can you see why the order is first apostles, second prophets, third teachers? Can you see that order? Because apostles and prophets and teacher, what does it add up to? The truth of the Bible. I'm teaching the Bible. That's why I exist as a teacher. But in the early church, teachers didn't have the New Testament. They had to get it directly from God. So you had apostles, prophets, and teachers. So the reason that it's first apostle, second prophet, third teacher, is that it equals the Bible. The Bible first, and then all the other ministries. Because until you've got the Bible, you can't test the other ministries. Can you see? And it's the same in Ephesians 4. Paul says apostles and prophets first. So that what we've got, apostles and prophets equal the word of God, the New Testament scriptures. So can you see the idea today, I mean, there are churches that they take this thing that churches are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what that means is that you've got to be in a church that was planted by an apostle working with a right-hand man prophet. Because otherwise, you're not in a church that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This isn't talking about individual ministries today. It's simply a carte blanche phrase that means the word of God. So the idea that you've got apostles and prophets, they plant churches, they then go on and plant other churches, and all these churches, the elders, are in submission to the prophet, who is then in submission to the apostle above him. Can you see that's ridiculous? Because they're, they're keeping alive the pyramid structure of the Lord, apostle, prophet, elders, when they've totally misunderstood the teaching of the Bible. All there is today is the Bible and elders. The apostles and prophets have been knocked out of the pyramid because we've got the Bible itself. All right. So then, <clears throat> before the New Testament was completed, the apostles and prophets did outrank elders. But now that we've got the Bible, they don't. Apostles number two and prophets number four equal the word of God. Now let's do some maths here, an equation. This phrase, the law and the prophets equals the Old Testament. So there we got it. The law and the prophets equals the New Testament. Plus, apostles and prophets equals the New Testament. So we've got, prophet, uh, we've got uh, the law and the prophets equals the Old Testament, plus Apostles and prophets equal the New Testament. Add them together, and what have you got? The Old and the New Testaments, the completed Word of God, the entire Bible. The church is built on the foundation of the teaching of the Bible. That is all you need now. The final authority in the church today is the Word of God implemented by elders and lived out by all. It's as simple as that, okay. Let me just, summing up, just random thoughts at the end, but they are important. Be very careful. Now that you've got a greater understanding of what a prophet today is and what a prophet today isn't, all right, be careful of prophets at big meetings and be careful of apostles anywhere. <laughs> and because... 
I mean, you get these meetings, come in here, profit so-and-so, as it were. And there you go to a big meeting, hundreds and hundreds of people there, and there's all the big leaders up the front who have called this profit in. But you see, your problem is that you don't really know who you're dealing with. You see, you've only got the word of the big leaders who got this profit there in the first place, but then you don't know the big leaders. Can you see? You've got no way of sussing that profit out. You've got no way of knowing whether his ministry is right. You've got no way of knowing whether his life is right. Can you see? So be very, very careful at any big meetings with profits at it, all right, when you don't know what you're dealing with. Now, in regards to prophecy, and we covered this when we did the Spiritual Gift series, never, ever, ever accept prophetic utterance, especially if it's personal to you, until you've tested it again and again and again with trusted brothers and sisters. I'll say that again. Never, ever, ever accept prophetic utterance to you until you have tested it time and time again with brothers and sisters who you really know and trust. And this is important to realise that God never, ever, ever guides people by prophecy alone. He never, ever, ever does it. What's interesting about Agabus is that Agabus, now this is, you know, super prophet in the New Testament, as it were, Agabus, you know, the man, the main man. Now, he comes to Paul and he predicts what Paul's future was at the hands of the Gentiles. Now, this is tremendously important. Agabus simply confirmed what Paul already knew for himself from the Lord. At the very best, prophecy is confirmatory. It is never originatory. Can you see the point? God never leads via prophecy alone. Never, ever, ever. And you see, the real problem with these big meetings, when you get these prophets and they're saying, Oi, you, stand up. You know, got a word for you. I mean, let's face it, in a crowd of 250 people, are you really going to say, nah, sorry, don't make the slightest bit of sense to me, mate? Well, of course not. You see, the thing is that prophets, when you see them working in the Bible, all right, Agabus, with a band of prophets, he went to some church leaders and says, oh, uh, there's going to be a, a famine, better get on to that. And they knew him really well. And Agabus comes to Paul in person. You see, the whole point is this, and when Paul talks about prophecy convicting the hearts of outsiders, where's that being done in the context of the local fellowship? Here's the point. Prophets, their ministry belongs either to, with individuals, all right, or in the intimacy of your own local fellowship. Not ever in big meetings. Can you see? It goes against the grain of what prophecy is supposed to be. Especially as sometimes a prophet may be saying things to you that, you know, a little bit personal, maybe a touch corrective. You know, I mean, all very loving and stuff like that, but a touch corrective. You shouldn't have to put up with that in public. No way. Can you see? They've got the, you know, the right ministry, but in the wrong place. It shouldn't be impersonal. No ministry in the Bible was impersonal. It was all done in the context of the local church. Everyone knew everyone. 
And, and, and if a so-called prophet came along, everyone knew him. He was bona fide, and everyone knew that he was bona fide. They knew they were safe with him. So therefore, I mean, when they get these kind of prophets from wherever they are, I mean, there's one who regularly comes over. And I mean, yeah, I, I don't even know if they're prophets. I doubt it. I mean, the ones that I've come across and read about who are supposed to be prophets, well, I mean, you could have fooled me. They don't meet the basic biblical criteria of what a prophet is, you see. But if people do want to bring prophets over or whatever, then it shouldn't be in mass meetings. By all means, share them out around local fellowships. Say, right, you have two weeks in that fellowship and then we'll give you a couple of weeks and get to know the people. But not this mass meeting stuff. It's very, very dangerous. Don't, don't touch it with a barge pole. All it's doing is... I mean, there are, there are you know, sort of Christians out there who are, who are just waiting for the right time to get on the boat to bloom in Africa because they've had a prophecy from a prophet. I mean, the stupidity of it. People, that they might have one person say, oh, the Lord is saying, you're, the favourite one is you're going to be a preacher to many nations. <laughs> I mean, there are thousands of believers out there who've had that prophecy. I mean, prophets today, if in doubt, tell them they're going to be a believer to many nations. Yeah. And then they're going around, oh, I think, oh, when's it going to be? And on the strength of one person who said one thing, who's supposed to be a prophet, they're waiting to throw up their career and sell their houses and go to Bongo Bongo land as a missionary. It's pathetic. No way. Keep away from big meetings like that. They're honestly not worth the trouble. Now, let me at this point give you a reassurance, and this is important, all right, because... I mean, I will be scathing about ministries that are wrong. But there's no way that I'll be scathing about ministries that are wrong without keeping the door wide open to ministries that are right. I will write off prophetic ministries that are wrong, but no way will I write off true prophets. And so this is why this assurance, reassurance, is important. Robert and I are perfectly open that God may, at any time, bring an apostle or a prophet to us as a fellowship. From the outside, to come along and to give apostolic or prophetic input, all right? We are quite open to that because it is biblical. And we've got to be very, very careful that in, in, in being scathing about the counterfeit that you don't chuck the genuine out. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We are absolutely open that God may at times, if he so sees fit, to bring us apostles and or prophets to minister to us as a church. But there are three things that I'm going to say now. Number one, Robert and I, and now you as a church, understand the teaching of the Bible about apostles and prophets. Now there is safety. We're not going to be taken in by anything false. Because as a church, we understand what the Bible actually teaches. Number one, their safety. Number two, no one, no matter who they were, apostle, prophet, no matter who they were or what they were, would get anywhere near this fellowship to minister to us as a fellowship, except that Robert and I are totally 100% satisfied, one, with their ministry, but even more important, with their personal lives. 
So no stranger will ever end up here, you know, directing this fellowship with words from the Lord. No way. Robert and I, we're quite open that God will bring such people. But they are going to be people who Robert and I will have had every chance or, I mean, in the future we'll have other elders, that the entire eldership will be 100% satisfied with the life, ministry and character of the person concerned. And the biggest thing that we'd be looking for is correctability. No one is ever going to minister to this fellowship who isn't correctable. Well, they might once or twice but they'll not make it a third or a fourth time because it's too dangerous. Can you see? So there's the second reassurance. Robert and I or the elders will know them and have tested them absolutely thoroughly. And then reassurance number three. They would minister in accountability to us as a church, not the other way around. So remember, they would not be coming in having authority over us in any way at all. Remember, we've seen that there is no hierarchy. There's just Jesus and everyone else. And if someone comes to us from the outside, apostle, prophet, whatever, then they will be accountable to us as a church in the same way that we are all accountable to the church. So, so have, have no fears of anyone coming in and doing some big authority thing over us because uh, obviously we're, we're well aware as a church, because we are so into the Word of God, that uh, that would be wrong anyway. And so there's, there's our safety from that. And of course, the thing is that if you did have someone come in with a prophetic gift, say he brought prophecies to people, well, because he doesn't know us as well as we know ourselves and as well as we know each other, there could be things that he brought. And remember, no, no one gets it right all the time. That's the same with prophets. Paul says we prophesy in part. And there may be prophecies that he might bring to somebody and the mere fact that we all know them so well might indicate, oh goodness, that could not be any further off beam. But on the other hand, if he brought prophecies that that really were applying to us individually or as a group precisely because we know each other so well we would be able to help confirm that and to test it and so therefore we are far better equipped as a fellowship to test prophetic words that come to us than the prophet is who gives it and that would be the same if any of us ever go anywhere else to other fellowships and if we are in a situation saying well I think maybe the Lord might be saying this well okay it may or may not be a prophecy but who's going to be best equipped to test it you giving the prophecy or the people together receiving it well obviously it is uh it's the latter so just be assured that any time that we receive apostolic or prophetic ministry our understanding is clear they're coming in as just one of the guys one of the lads as simple as that no big authority thing no hierarchies anything like that so so they're believe you me, is our safety. Right, okay, there you have it, apostles and prophets. And I left Star Trek out of it completely. Oh, <laughs>